My name is Thomas Ogus. I'm the handler for the show, The Redacted Reports. What we're doing this week is a little bit uh, different, but we're doing something special and unique to Delta Green, the role-playing game. What this game features is something called home scenes. As a part of our character development and even story development, what our characters do and our players do in the times between the story. This particular episode will feature the collected home scenes of our four agents, each of which has chosen something to focus on, a piece of their story, their background, uh, skills and advancement that they wanted to focus on. And we will do these scenes. Uh, I'm sure you'll appreciate and enjoy them. And these particular scenes don't necessarily have to happen in order, but they were doing them in this order because we have to pick some order. So they're just, they take place at a point after the last story has ended and before the next one begins. So, uh, Rory, you, uh, you're taking Andrew back to the pharmaceutical lab. Is that where you want to go? Uh, yeah, so we, Andrew and I both have the day off, uh, so we're going down here. I've told him a little bit about what's going on. Basically, he knows that something went down in Afghanistan. They got me recruited with Delta Green, and I told him a lot of what happened on this last trip, but I haven't told him as much about what initially happened, just because everything was so hectic at the end of coming back from Montana. Uh, what he does know, there was some Black Ops guys that I had to work on while I was there, emergency situation. Um, one of them hands me this black bag, says, don't open it. Don't let them see it. I kind of keep it hidden from the guys that are like the suits that were there. Um, and that's about all he knows right now. He's, um, why are we bringing these rabbits with us? You'll see. I want to see... I'm trying to get in a sense of how it's going to affect them. Oh, um, is this is this like a pathogen situation? I've got like a like a negative pressure hood, something like that. So take him down there with the make sure <laughs> there's no one behind. I mean, it's abandoned. It's I, from my experience, it's pretty usually abandoned. Right, and every time you've been here, just like today, it's you turn the fluorescence on, the the they slowly hum and light this large laboratory room up one after another. This empty laboratory room. The table's covered in drop cloths, everything turned off, uh, dust on anything that's not covered up. And you get the, the mixers and the analyzers and the, the grinders and the, the chem hoods, one of which you've been using for some of your experiments. So you uh, you take the little rabbit hutch over there and that black sealed bag that you uh, recently recovered from your, your hiding place. And Andrew follows along. He's got his, his hospital jacket on, his doctor jacket on, just like, like you would have here at the hospital. He just... Patiently following you, he looks. He's curious. He looks, he's interested. He's you know he's not afraid of this. He doesn't know what the, what you're up to, but he's he's intrigued. And you've told him enough to keep him keep him so. So when you make it to that hood, what what's how do you want to do your little experiment? What do you want to do? Uh, so I will just put one of the rabbits in there. Um, uh, so do you want to put uh, Pinky or Lucky? Which one? <laughs> uh, I guess Lucky. <laughs> not not his lucky day. All right. So, and unfortunately, Andrew named him. He had no idea that uh, they've been in this place now for about a week. He, uh, he just kind of shakes his head a little bit, but luck, Lucky goes into the, the cam hood. You could close it up. He hops a couple times, and the little rabbit nose wiggles around as he kind of sniffs the inside of the sterile environment. What's next? All right. Don't freak out, okay? Okay, yeah, yeah sure. All right. Uh, he'll use the like the gloves that uh, are part of that. And like he's done before, carefully open the bag, kind of dump it out. And do you want to pull it out or let it come out? I can, I might like pull at the end of the bag a little bit just to kind of. 
you kind of shake it a little bit and out of this bag drops a, a, a hand, a decapitated, dismembered hand, black as midnight. Uh, it looks rotted and decayed, decrepit and dried. But it, it, as it hits the bottom of the, the tray of this chem hood, it seems to quiver in the fingers. It rises up on its fingertips. So it rests on just its five fingers and it moves slightly, almost like a spider, um, in the direction of Lucky. And Lucky turns and kind of hobbles quickly away towards the corner of the chem hood. And Andrew, you see Andrew, he just, he, his, his face goes ashen. He holds his breath. He doesn't say anything. I'll grab his hand. Well, I guess I, I'll take one hand out and kind of grab his hand just to make sure he's doing okay. He, can, he gives you a quick side eye, side eye glance and looks at you. This is like, what, like what, what, the, what the hell is this? And uh, for fun, I'm going to see how how he manages. Oh, my God. He rolls a zero one. A zero freaking one. <laughs> I, <laughs> I am not kidding. All right. Um, awesome. He, he squeezes your hand and he smiles a little bit. And, and, and a sort of dark curiosity crosses over his face as he watches this dismembered hand creep, crawl, crouch slightly, and then propel itself and grab onto that, that little innocent bunny rabbit in the corner of the cam hood. Um, the rabbit makes a, some kind of squeaky sound. It's hard to tell inside the hood. Um, it quivers a bit, and where it is grabbed, the, the fur falls off immediately. And the skin goes black and cold and parched and rotted and decays in front of your eyes in a matter of seconds. And that the back half of the rabbit where it's grabbed falls apart. The front of the rabbit is lifeless. It's still there. And the hand creeps over, slightly grabbing the other part of the rabbit that hasn't yet disintegrated, grabbing it, turning it black and dry and decay it falls and collapses and crumbles until there's just bits and pieces of fur and bone and flesh that it wasn't grabbed it, it scurries around a little bit like it's looking for something it presses up against the side of the glass bangs against the side of the glass little little quivering black fingers moving inside the hood and it wanders around slowly inside like it's searching is that i can't remember if did it do something ever do anything like that before because before I previously had given it one or two small mice. It seems a little more active today than last time you, you fed it. A- a- Andrew is just, he can't stop looking at it. He's just like glued to watch. He's watching this thing move around the inside of the hood. This is amazing. Uh, so yeah, that's what I've been hiding down here. <laughs> what is it? I don't know. What do you mean? What is that? You, yeah, I have no idea. I have no freaking idea. Why do you have that? Someone gave it to you? One of those Black Ops guys, I told you he gave me, he handed me this thing in that, uh, might have been a diff, like a waterproof bag, and then I later opened it in a hood like this back over in Afghanistan just to look at it, and it was, I don't know, it didn't, it doesn't do much unless it's like when I had those that rabbit in here when I have a mice when I had those mice in here before then it kind of goes towards it so I don't know I'm trying to figure out like either what it is or how I could like protect against it because it looks like it could be part of something bigger well it, it can't get out of the glass and, it, and inside the bag it's not it can't hurt us right I've done I've taken it in and out a few times um it doesn't seem to be able it's not that strong should we should we what should we poke it? What should we do? 
Do you want to, do you want to hurt it? Um, we could, maybe we should cut it a little bit. I could, I'll poke it a little bit with my either. Like, I'll grab, like, a forceps and kind of poke it. So I'm trying to think if you have any tools. They have to be already inside the hood. Otherwise, you have to open the hood up. Yeah, I would probably have, like, some tweezers or something in there. Something long and pokey. Uh, do you have any dice with you? Otherwise, I'll roll the luck for you. No, I have, I have dice with me. All right, give me a luck roll. 38. Okay, yeah. You've got a couple of things in there, um, some some probes and, um, you know, little forceps and whatnot. Things you wanted to use to grab it, obviously. You would need to grab it, so you've got those already sitting there inside the hood. Yeah, because I would need to wait to get it back in the bag. Yeah. So you put your hands back in those thick rubber gloves that they're attached to the hood. Grab, what do you want to grab? Uh, I'll grab, if it looks like there's something like longer, I guess it would have like some sort of tongs, maybe I'll just poke it with those. Yeah, so you, you can poke it, um, you just want, if you poke it, it, it recoils a little bit and moves away from wherever you are. Kind of scurries slowly away from the, the source of the poking. Uh, anything else you want to do to it? Yeah, because I feel like most of the stuff I've done kind of before poked it, I can't remember exactly what all I've done with, I had done with it. Do we do we want to damage it? Do we want to study it? Should we get some slides? Maybe we should take a sample. We can put it in the microscope. I've done that before. I took a, tried to take a sample and it didn't really, nothing came of it. Like what, what did you see? I think I took like oh I tried to grow I think I tried to do like a culture of it and nothing really didn't do anything. But what did you culture it with? I mean just just typical bacterial culture that we should we should put it in some blood or something. That's a good idea. I probably just did the normal. This is why I brought you. Um, <laughs> I don't know if like we could try to cut a, get a piece kind of take a piece off of it. All right. Well, um, if we if we hold it really steady, um, we'll, we can use some scissors. We'll take a small slice of it with the scissors. Then we'll take that sample with the tongs, put it in the petri dish, and we can dissect that further from there. But with, with gloves on, obviously. Right. Another another thing I'm curious about is if there's something that can, obviously in this, the bag, it's not it doesn't go through that. Like how much is enough to prevent it, and how quickly does it spread? Well, it looks like. Okay. Uh, how about we use um, we use a towel. We'll put the other rabbit in a towel. It's not a bad idea. Do you want? To, let's maybe save that for a little bit later. We got all morning. Uh, or get the, get the, yeah, let's get the, uh, so I'll get grab some scissors, cut it. All right. Try so to he, get a piece off of it. There's a second pair of gloves, part of the hood. So Andrew goes over there, gloves up, and he's like, can I, can I do it? Be my guess. I'll, usually there's only one pair on those because it's just enough, but I'll kind of get up and let him use the gloves. All right. So he uses the gloves, grabs the tongs, snatches it with the tongs, and he's like, well, how are we going to take a sample? What are we going to do? We could try to cut off like a. What if we cut off like part of its the tip of its finger or like part of an edge where it's I don't know. That's the only thing I can think of. So using the other hand, he grabs a, one of the um, little forceps or something, holds it down with the tongs. It squirms and wriggles a bit, and he holds it down really tight and kind of uses pressure with the forceps to kind of push and knock a piece off of it. Then he uses the tongs to grab that. Uh, changes his mind, bags it up, closes so it up. The hand? Yeah, bags the hand the, up. Okay. Yeah, and once it's bagged up, it opens the hood up. You guys retrieve this little, little piece. You've, you've scraped a sample off the side of one of the fingers, kind of a, like a real imprecise scrape tear of flesh off this thing. So he collects that really carefully with some rubber gloves, gets a dish and whatnot. I can get some blood from the hospital, and we'll, we'll see what it does. Yeah, that's probably going to have to be a... I don't know how easy it's going to be to procure that unless we just, I don't know, get some lancets. Yeah. Yeah, not, not a problem. Later, later. Uh, what for now? What, what, should, what should we do? Well, if the, the hands are ready. Way it depends on if uh, we could get a towel 
grab the other rep. Yeah, I, he, might as well okay. do that now. So he's he's uh, he's excited. He goes over to the supply cabinets, finds some old towels and stuff. Gets it, looks at Pinky, and just kind of shakes his head a little bit. I'm sorry, buddy. I told you not to name him. I didn't know. Yeah, so he pulls the rabbit out of the hutch, blankets it up in the towel, puts it inside the hood, closes the hood, looks at you like, okay. All right. Uh, so is it just completely wrapped up? It's mostly. It's a little. Its head is poking out the other one side okay. of the towel. Right. So he get, puts the hands in the gloves, un, opens the bag again. It, it comes creeping out pretty quickly. You know, he withdraws you know, his hands and watches. It goes over to where the towel is, grabs the towel a couple times. And you notice that as it touches the towel, it doesn't seem to have much effect as it's grasping at the towel until it grabs the head of the rabbit, which is the exposed part. And then it, immediately the, the fur falls off. It goes black. It, goes, it starts withering and rotting in front of you. He's, the hand digs into the towel and goes after the rest of like it's kind of like clawing at it? Or? Yeah, it, once it gets the head, it, it seems to wiggle itself inside that wrapped up towel and go after the oh, rest wow. of the remains of the rabbit and, and just grasping at it. And Andrew is just staring the whole time from outside the hood, like a foot away, just watching this thing go. I'm going to put my head on his shoulder. Like he, When you do, he, he kind of jumps a little bit and looks at you and looks back inside the, at the hood. Everything or You seen what I'm seeing? It looks like... I've never seen anything like this before. Yeah, it's I don't know. I don't know what to I don't know what to make of it. So he looks over Jesus. So what do we do next? <laughs> Let's go. We'll cut it there unless you want something else you want to do. Yeah, probably just wrap up the hand, clean everything up and save that sample like in a probably a blank. Does it look like the sample's not changing at all as we leave it out or? Yeah, as you leave it out, it looks like just a piece of old, rotten, decayed flesh that you scraped off of a dead hand. Okay, probably set that aside to look at that a little later. Do I get any unnatural skill for that, or? Yeah, let's let's add. We'll add five more to your unnatural. Okay, that's from four up to nine. And and of course, I'm gonna add some to Andrew's as well. Yeah, all right, and going forward in the future, of course, you know, um, Andrew is a, a willing co-conspirator, co-participant, whatever you want to do. He's on board 100 percent with whatever weird stuff you want to show him. He took that way better than I was anticipating, which is yeah, me too. Fascinating, <laughs> fascinating. So, if you happen to want to show him some uh, interesting uh, books you found, reading material, or whatever, uh, I think he would love to check that out. No, I'm sure. Well, now seeing as he, how we've reacted to that, I would probably be more open with him in the future about Delta Green activities. So, I want to cut now to our friend River, uh, and we will find out from River what it is that Seth wants to focus on for his home scene. So, Seth with River. Uh, it's up to you if you want it to be several weeks, a month later, or even days later from the end of our last story. Uh, what did you want to focus on or have us work on for your home scene? Well, to start with, River is kind of concerned that he was not very effective in the firefights we got into. Uh, so he wants to uh, work on that a bit. So probably less less than a week after they get home, he's going to call Rooster. Right, and I would advise that he make that call sooner than less than a week, for story reasons. But uh, we'll, we'll just say that that happened, because our, our friend uh, Rooster may not be around that long, but he is available when you make that phone call. And Rooster, when you get this call from River, where do you want to have him meet you? I'm planning on picking him up, because he's in Concord, and I want to take him out kind of into the hills up off Highway 4. Right, and what are you taking with you? A bunch of stuff in the back of my truck. All right, good. So we'll pick up our scene then. We are um, way off. We found a place off the road, uh, maybe with uh, the North Bay in the distance, up on some of these lower hi- low hills 
River is there. River, you probably brought some of your own weapons, of course. Uh, but Rooster is very busy load, loading these large military duffel bags from the back of his lifted pickup truck and setting you guys up in a kind of secluded, out-of-the-way place. Here, it's it's um, it's mid-October in the California uh, sun. It's still warm here. And the floor is yours, Rooster, if you want to explain <laughs> to River a better way to handle his weapons. All right. So what exactly have you trained in, first off? Well, I mean, I, they do qualify me with the pistol and the shotgun. I mean, that's part of the job. But, you know, shooting on the range is one thing. When, when you actually have somebody else shooting back, it's kind of different. Oh, so you want me to shoot back at you while you're firing? Well, I don't know about that, but, <laughs> you know, just kind of work on the more high-tense, real, more realistic situations. I've, I'm sure you've been through all of that. Do they actually shoot at you when you're training? Depends on which training. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I've been trained in a lot of different things, and I've been a trainer. So, well, first off, let me see your stance with the handgun. I'm not worried about the shotgun. You you got that. You point and click. So so River will take out his his gun and uh, uh, well actually first he will. Do we need like ear protection here? What? Okay, I guess that's covered. I'll pull out a, a thing of earplugs. When we actually start shooting, I'll put we'll put these in. Okay, so he'll so River will chuck pull out his pistol and he'll you know check the magazine and do all the normal uh, safety routines he's been taught. All right, and uh, your stance. And so he'll line up and and, and aim at the tree or something. And I'm gonna go over and you know start poking and moving him around and stuff, show him how to hold the gun with two hands so you're pushing forward with one hand and pulling back with the other so you have a neutral stance. Line him up so he's actually looking down the sights instead of wherever the hell he was pointing. Okay. And explaining the whole thing. And then I'm going to pull out an energy drink. I'm going to go, okay, you're going to shoot this. Give me one sec. Oh, 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 oh. Fire in the hole, and I just chuck it overhand. And River. He will probably shoot, like, when it's just about to hit the ground. And you want to shoot it while it's moving in midair, is that right? Yeah, but he reacted late. Because <laughs> he wasn't expecting that. <laughs> what I was expecting, when you went in combat, this is fantastic. So, um, River, you have to roll firearms for me, but at a negative 20, you hit that small, tumbling can as it drops to the earth. 48, so that's not... Horrible, but it's definitely not a success. Yeah, you take a couple shots uh, in the vicinity, but of course, you don't hit the can. It tumbles and bounces and rolls in the dirt near that barren tree that was about 50 yards away from you. All right. Well, didn't expect you to hit that one, but hit it now. Take another shot. 92. (laughs) Yeah, he's he's a little further away this time. It's a small target. (laughs) I'll go over, correct the stance, and then go, okay. Here's the big thing. You're pulling the trigger. Isn't that how you shoot? No. Squeeze it. So here's the difference. We're going to take this nice and slow. When you pull the trigger, it's a jerky motion. You lose your aim. This one, what I want you to do, aim, and then slowly squeeze, and slowly a little bit more, a little bit more, a little bit more until it goes off. Can I give him a bonus die with this instruction? We're going to make this essentially like he's going to do an aimed shot, which is essentially a 20% to his roll with this slow, careful technique. Okay. Or 20% to the skill, I should say. 
22, yes. Critical That's a critical success. success with the 22. With one single shot, River nails it. The can dead center. It flies into the air and tumbles about, bounces off the tree, lands somewhere near you. One quick, excellent shot. Yeah, kind of figured that's what was going on. That's the rookie mistake. So that's what you're going to work on at home when you go to the range. All right? You're not going to chuck the can. That was just to see your reflexes. You're going to practice your reflexes with something completely different. I'll tell you how to use a stick and a bush to work on targeting your reflexes later. Okay, that sounds weird. Not really. It's you take a stick or an umbrella or whatever, and you get out in front of a bush. And then you just kind of watch and let, you don't focus on anything. And when one of the leaves kind of moves, the sun catches it and hits your eye, get it with the stick. And then when someone else does it, get it with the stick. And the whole thing is not looking for something specific. It's just training your reflexes to react to it when something catches it. You're going to suck at it at first. I promise. Well, well, thanks for that. No, no, that's not you. No, (sighs) that's not you. I still suck at that one. It's, it's a stupid thing that doesn't really translate to fighting, but it'll train your reflexes, I promise. Well, we'll see what happens. All right. So I want to cut things here. This is a great scene. And of course, Rooster's got a plane to catch. So we got to pack him up and get him moving. But uh, River, you've got some extra time. Of course, you're going to practice your, your, your firearms skill using the new instruction you've received. But is there something else River also wanted to look at? Well, he, he was, you know, he's got the uh, notes he got from Laura Gaunt. He, he looks over them a little bit. There's a lot of math that's kind of uh, looks similar to that manus- manuscript he uh, was reading before. But he's kind of reached the limits of what he can understand the math-wise. He's, you know, thinking about how he can get some help understanding that. But uh, thinking it over... He, his priority isn't going to be looking at what, what Gant was up to right now. He's thinking that the, the most important thing is learning more about what sort of creatures that Arcel might run into and have to deal with. So he's going to go and uh, pull out one of his old files. Right. And just a, just a note about, of course, that book you've been working on. Um, while the math is way above your understanding of it from your college courses, and the science as well. Uh, you're a scientist, but this is really kind of high-level, advanced PhD stuff. There's an interesting inkling in the back of your brain as you read it, though, uh, like a whisper that tells you that just a little more, just a little further, maybe you'll get this. Something inside you feels like uh, this is something with, with more study. It's It'll make sense. It's weird. But every now and then as you read, you remember something from 12 pages ago, or you see something from Laura Gant's formulas that resonates with you. There's something here, you can sense it, but at the same time, your logical brain tells you that you shouldn't be understanding this. It's way above your understanding, but there's still a sense that maybe with further study at a future date, uh, this will start to click for you. But going to the mine incident, um, of course, this is a file you haven't looked at in how long? Oh, since it was filed, really, which is probably uh, six months or more, maybe close to a year now. And after the incident, did you ever go back and look at this stuff again, or is this something you just wanted to forget? Well, it's not so much something he wanted to forget. It's something that just kind of was a blank to him. Right. At least, at least, at least large parts of it were. And of course, your initial investigation was like any other investigation you've done. You document the steps, the, the, the reasons, 
the, the investigations you did, the people you spoke to, the things you uncovered, and as your recollection of it as you look through your notes again. Uh, it was a very mundane investigation. I'll let you go ahead and fill the gaps in. What were you looking for and where were you looking? So basically what happened was that they got reports that uh, some miners were sick and they were trying to understand what was causing that. EPA was called in because uh, it looked like, you know, some kind of toxic waste exposure possibly. River got called in and he worked with the local sheriffs, went in and basically went through this mine looking for any improperly stored materials and any pools of stuff lying around kind of very routine stuff for for river really they they didn't find anything everything was normal no violations nothing to explain why the miners were sick so what did river do well he was a little bit suspicious of the local sheriff seemed a bit too close to the mine owners and uh, he thought they might be uh, covering things up for them. So he, he started asking questions, uh, going to the miners himself. And finally, he, he got a break where one of the miners gave him an anonymous tip saying that uh, they had recently opened up a new passage in the mine and that when the mine owners found out that there was going to be an investigation, they pretty much hid that passage behind some you know, piles of rubble old equipment, just kind of disguising the entrance to that passage. So River decided that he needed to check this out and he, he decided he was gonna go in alone, not tell the sheriffs about this. He, he didn't want to give them a chance to hide anything else. And that day, River, you went there, but you don't remember. You don't remember entering the mine. Your notes tell you you went alone, but whether someone was with you or not, you don't know. You know you parked your, your your work truck somewhere near the entrance like you did the last two times you went there. And you know you went that, you believe you went into the mine and investigated, but you have no memory of that day. And well, all you remember is waking up in the Moaning Caves. Uh, Moaning Caves is a, it's a cave that tourists visit. It's, you know, it's a cave system that has tours going through there and people that's partially explored, can, uh, spelunkers and whatnot go through it in all time. Uh, you woke up there, That's and that location was more than five miles from the investigative site that you were looking at. As far as the reports go, you have the report in front of you. Uh, you look at it. You, they, they found you in there. You're wearing all your uniform. Um, you've got your, your keys. You've got your wallet. You've got your cell phone. Everything is on you that you took with you. you there's no injuries, but no memory. You don't know why you're there, how you got there. The report itself indicates that uh, you must have wandered there at some point. They assume you must have just gone there and maybe you fell and you blanked out. The police don't know. They believe you took yourself there. You traveled there for some reason. Uh, your vehicle was not located at the Moaning Caves. It was still parked at the other side. Of course, they found you 48 hours after you initially went on your first investigative routine. So two days later. Um, and of course, everyone was happy to find you. and Everyone was happy that you're alive and you were fine. And the fact that you're alive and you're fine and nothing's wrong with you you're in one piece, they let it go. Uh, it wasn't a black mark on your, your employment record. Um, you can't explain it, but ultimately it was something that they just, they let slide. Anything else you want to do to look into this? Well, I mean, I spent some time just staring at the report and uh, the notes I took and trying to see if it triggers any memories at all. So one thing you do notice as you're staring at these reports, uh, you, you see reports from a couple different sheriffs over here from Tulalami County who found you in the Moaning Cave. There's those reports. But there's no reports for 
the mine site. Um, you don't even see any mention of your vehicle. You remember they told you they found your vehicle at the mine, but you don't see any reports about the mine site. There is one document in there, a small document, the missing persons report that, that Jen made uh, about you 24 hours before they even found you. Just knowing your investigative background, they logically would have gone to where they last thought you would be at, but there's no, there's no search reports. If anyone was searching for you, there's no paperwork about the search, where they looked, who looked, or whatnot. That seems kind of odd. I'll get on the computer files and, and see if there's doing internet, uh, well, a search of the database for the EPA and, and law enforcement and see if I can find any other reports linked to this, uh, see if we can connect to the Tuolumne Sheriff's Department and if they have a database of reports. Using your basically government databases, of course, you find the EPA investigative reports, which is the stuff you wrote. And there's one further report from your supervisor about them recovering you in this other location, you being fine. And of course, the initial investigation being inconclusive. And ultimately, you got a clear bill of health and they passed you. The EPA has no reports about the search. They didn't search for you. Uh, they turned it over to the Tuolumne County Sheriff's Department. As you look online, you can't access their, their, their records. There is no access. But you have contact information. You can obviously contact the records department at Tuolumne County Sheriff's Office and look into it that way. But your online search... Uh, you do find a note about lost investigator found in the Moaning Caves. That news, uh, that small news article is in there. Your story, basically. It doesn't tell you anything new. But you do figure if you want to look further into this, you probably have to contact the uh, Sheriff's Department directly. Yeah, I'll, I'll call up there, that contact number I have. Okay, so when you call him up, they give, they give you the records guy. And so he answers, and uh, what do you want to ask him for? I want to ask him for any files they have regarding the missing persons report. Okay. So um, you give them the information. You've got the file number, the, their internal number they use for the reports. It's already a desk already. And it takes the guy a while. And he comes back. He says, I have to call you back. So you wait in your office. You do some other things. And near the end of the day, you get a call back from this guy from the, the records department telling you, he says, I'm sorry, um, we don't have those records here. I don't know what happened to them, but we don't have the records. The, the number you have uh, isn't showing up in our system anymore. As a, there's nothing here. It's, it's not there anymore? Does that mean it was there before? Did someone take it? Uh, I, I don't know. I mean, um, I, I really can't say. I, I checked. I went to check the papers. The paper records are gone. The computer record has been removed. I don't know. It doesn't say that we had it before. It just it just doesn't exist. That's odd. I mean, I've got, I've got your case number right here. You don't have any record of that at all? Yeah, I mean, under that case number, um, yeah, it comes up as a missing persons report investigation. Um, I got the investigating officer here, but no paperwork in the system at all. Okay. Uh, give me the name of the officer, please. So it gives you the name of the officer. This guy is Jefferson. It's a Deputy Jefferson from their, the department. Well, I'll probably uh, try to follow up with him at some point. It's not nothing urgent, uh, but uh, I'm just curious about It's odd that file's missing. Yeah, I'm, I'm sorry. I, I, I don't know what happened. We just we don't appear to have it anymore. Well, thanks for taking a look for me. Hey, you're welcome. All right, take care. So I want to cut now to our friend Rooster, who's got a, a, a one-way ticket to Dallas, Texas, where he's going to be joining a team. So I'll skip all that stuff. We fly you one way. Damn, um, I left my cowboy hat. Yeah. And you're just bringing the t- pack light. Obviously, don't bring any weapons. Honestly, it's a, it's a domestic flight. But you fly to um, Dallas, Texas. They meet you there with some people. There's some teammates. There's a brief orientation in like an old airplane hangar before they fly you down 
the Sao Paulo, and then you and some other group of individuals. So it's going to be essentially a eight individuals in this operation. They have two teams of four. You have one squad of yours, another squad as well. And you guys will be providing security for a private Brazilian company, which is doing some exploratory work out in the Amazon, which translates to they're, they're burning a lot of stuff and clearing a lot of land. Ben, I'm going to let you describe to me the three of the individuals, of the four of you, that you get paired up with in this little uh, security team for the Breckenridge Corporation. I don't know what terms they're using, but the kind of leader of this squad uh, is Garcia, former army. He obviously enjoys what he does a little too much. He's definitely gung-ho and antsy, ready to go. There's Johnson. He's southern guy. And he's just obviously hates everyone and everything. Doesn't talk to me much except to give me shit, but whatever, I'm used to that. And then there's Christensen, who I'm really used to because I know that type from the Valley. Skinny, blonde, runner kind of guy. Army kicked him out for attitude, fighting. He's just utter despicable asshole. So Johnson, what branch was he from before he's doing private security? Johnson was National Guard that got called up and sent to Iraq, excuse me, Iraq in Rooster's term, a bunch of times forever, basically, during the early days. And then we have, of course, Rooster. They would basically call you what? What what uh what name we want to use with these fellows? Rooster? I mean, his default would just be to use Rooster because that's what they called him back in Hammerlock on his old team, and that's what he uses now. But if no one else is using nicknames, he's probably going to go with his last name or just go yeah. with Gunny, whatever they're yeah. comfortable with. Uh, they'll, they'll call you, let's see, um, Soldier is the generic term when they're referring to you, Soldier, but... Garcia's going to call you Mr. White, is what he'll refer to you as. Uh, and they're, all, they're going by Garcia, Johnson, and Christians. They're actually going by names, these fellows. So they're not officers. They're not military. These are private security guys. So you got a, a boss team lead, which is Garcia. And they just call you all, you're all soldier, 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 in the general term. And there's another team as well. Uh, the other team is going to be led by who? That's Womack. And that's all you know is you don't know Womack's team. You actually don't deal with them, but you do know Womack from all the meetings. So Womack, give us a description of Womack. The major thing, he's fairly professional, pretty gung-ho, but he's definitely that militia type. He has a ton of tattoos of all the things that are absolutely in no way, shape, or form white supremacists. No way. Fantastic. <laughs> Love these guys already. Of course, Womack's got his team, Garcia's got his team, and basically a lot of what you guys are going to do, brief orientation, what they learn really quickly, of course, is Gunny, Mr. White, you've got more experience and more training than most of the guys you're working with. It's the first thing you'll learn within the first 30 minutes that you're there amongst these guys. U.S. Army, National Guard, whatever, and they got their service records, but none of them have the specialized Marine recon training that Rooster does. Uh, Garcia, of course, he's got some command experience. He's got some corporate experience. He's been here longer than you. You respect the guy because he's your boss, like a sergeant. But in fact, as you work with these guys, it'll be apparent. You're, you're a little more along the line, a little more advanced, a little more professional, a little more trained. The job mostly entails security. What you're doing is security. And essentially, there's a lot of these very large, heavy equipment that are clearing trees and, and building a road and doing other infrastructure improvements that you guys are there on site in these Jeeps. Two guys to each Jeep. Patrolling the perimeter, keep an eye on things. If the natives get too close, show a force. Uh, nobody seems to mess with the, the project. There's a lot of people here. Heavy equipment, employees, working around the clock, lights are on in the evenings, everything's lit up. 
large, massive trees and old growth being torn down. They got roads they're building. They got things they got to do. It's working deeper and deeper into the Amazon. In the evenings, when you guys are off duty, what would you guys do to kind of unwind? Most of them are drinking a lot because, you know, kick back. Womack seems to disappear and talks a lot about women a lot of the time and not in the way that Rooster does even. Christensen gets on everyone's nerves, especially Rooster's, and Johnson just acts like he hates it. Nine days in, nine days in the job. It's it's a job. You're working security. They've equipped you. You've got the black outfit. You've got some pretty sophisticated gear. Uh, you're working security. You haven't shot anybody. No one's shot anybody. Nothing's nothing crazy has happened. But nine days in, uh, you're probably not feeling it. To put it put it uh, <laughs> to put it nicely. After one of these evenings where guys are drinking, people are letting off steam, conversations are going, roosters may be zoning out. On your way back to your quarters, and you basically you're bunking with another guy. You're probably bunking with Christensen. Great. As you enter the or approach your bunk, you've had a bunch of drinks already at this point. You're unwinding. Mr. Trent is there. You talked to him on the phone originally. You saw him back in Dallas. Uh, Mr. Trent is essentially, he's one of the execs for the Breckenridge Corporation. He's wearing a cowboy hat, which is something he likes to do. Uh, he basically has a button-down shirt, no tie. He's got a vest on, and it's one of these kind of like uh, outdoorsy vests. You know, like a hunter-fisherman kind of vest on. Jeans, a belt buckle, boots. Uh, uh, but he's hanging out next to your, your bunk or next to your place. And he kind of nods at you, tips the cowboy hat to you, and motions for you to go inside. I kind of do a quick glance, no one else around. Kind of mental shrug and head on in. Because I've figured out by now that operative professionalism is not necessarily the way to go with these guys. But little bit of cockiness and nah, I don't care is kind of the way to go. So I'll go in. He comes in behind you, closes up the, uh, the bunk door of this kind of a portable tent that you guys have. You know, they kind of you pop up the whole thing structure goes up quick and easy. So he, and he stands there for a minute, looks at you, points to one of the beds for you to sit down. Like he wants you to sit down. Uh, okay. Uh, so, I mean, Mr. White, I know, uh, I know. I don't need a mister, man. I work for you. Just white. All right, white. Listen, white. I, I know this is the kind of job you were expecting. I apologize for your first gig. This isn't quite what we wanted. Uh, it was what was available. And I, so it's, it's on me. It's my bad. But your talents are being wasted here. I, I got it. Hey, man, you're the one paying me. If you want me here, I'm here. I mean, they're paying us, so we're paying you. we got to provide security for these guys. It's, the gig is not that exciting. Uh, if there's something else you want to do later on, you've done this, you put the time in for us, I, I respect that. You let me know. i got other things I can, I can put you on that so it's a little more suited to a guy with your particular uh, expertise. You got my interest. You're a shooter, right? That's what my record says. Your record looks pretty damn good. Hoorah. I respect you, guy. We got people that we can shoot that need shooting. I just wasn't ready to put you on something like that you know, without shaking you out a bit. What do you mean people need shooting? There's people all over the world that need shooting, and that's what we... We got we got people that do that. And I got people that do security. I got people that guard ammunition dumps. I got people that guard research facilities, as you probably know. I got lots of different jobs. Our corporation, we got a lot of different tasks. We got a lot of different employers, some of which just need us to babysit. You know, watch something, make sure nothing bad happens, or watch the heavy machinery in the jungle. It's not glamorous. I know you've worked some security jobs. Not this bad. Or actually, probably worse, right? Guard, guard the strip mall or something like that. 
no, no offense. No, no drive-in offense. movie theater, it's worse. Yeah, I mean, that, that's, I, I get it. I get it. I got other gigs. Hey, other things Some, I can have you something do. a little more exciting sounds awesome, but yeah, don't, I'm not, I kind of peek outside. I'm, don't think I'm one of the trigger happy ones, man. Hey, I, I, need, I need a guy that can make decisions, not a guy that just shoots everything in sight. A guy that has discretion, that can make an intelligent call and make the right call. Rooster's going to kind of think and remember, you know, how he automatically defers to Rowan because he knows he's not the smart one. But then looking at the guys outside he was drinking with, realizing, oh, wait, never mind, I am. I mean, I know that you're training, you're, you're used to having a spotter with you. That guy will let you know where to put the bullet and you, you hit the mark. Hey, I spotted too. That's right. That's the training. You guys do it. I get it. Some of our advanced scouts found something up ahead. I want you to take a look at the next day. I got, I'm just taking you and about three other guys who I trust. Let's take a look at something for us. You're more interested in that. <laughs> uh, yeah, you could say that. Okay. And um, something else I got to talk to you about. It's um, not a big deal. We've done work for you guys before. Uh, I mean, you're, you're Delta Green, right? I'm going to try and just very calmly go... Uh, what? Come on, Gunny. That whole thing up there in Montana? I'm not a fool. Then you know some things I can't talk about. I hear that. I hear that. Operation Security? I got it. Listen, what we're doing here, I think you're going to like it. Kind of, uh, you know, call back to the old cowboy days. (sighs) I left my hat back in California. That's a shame. I only brought this one. Yeah, see what I can find. All right, so hey, listen, um, tomorrow morning, I got to get you and a couple others. We're going to do a little a little something extra. Sounds good. All right, you take care there, White. I'll catch you in the morning, um, 8.30. Yes, sir. Or 08.30, as you guys would say, right? Yeah, I mean, usually it's more like 0500, but sure. Yeah, I'm going to let you sleep in here. I'm a generous employer. <laughs> right, you take it easy, White. Good working with you. And he, he exits your, your bunk. All right, so um, in the morning, you get ready. It's going to be you and three other individuals you haven't seen before. And not, not the guys from Walmart's squad. You've seen those Walmart's guys before. That's not the guys from your squad either. Uh, those security guys are left behind. They're watching the heavy machinery. They're doing this, the perimeter. Same stuff you've been doing for more than a week now. Uh, these other three look a little bit more buttoned down. They don't say much to you. They look at you. They acknowledge you. They, they eye you. You know, size you up as another operator might. I'm going to do the same to them because I'm, I'm getting that the tone's changed at this point. So um, they, they make sure that you have equipment that you need. If you want to get some new equipment, it's up to you, but you've, you've got basic equipment already. I mean, what's my basic equipment at this point? Um, it's basically, you get the uniform, you got your, your rifle, your, I think it's your, oh gosh, what is you've been using? M4? This, yeah, the M4 you've been using, you got that. You got a, a side pistol, you've got spare ammunition, your canteen, you know, your, your rations, your... Uh, your baton, all the other sundries you would need. And the big thing Rooster especially is going to want is a scope. Okay. If he's if he's scouting, they've got they got extra scopes. They also they actually have a longer rifle that you might prefer. Oh yeah. The, yeah. Yeah. So they give you one of the long rifles with the scope and the tripod already built into it. He's very pleased with this. Yeah. And so they. they I mean, you it's no anti tank yeah. rocket, but no, it's, uh, yeah, nothing is. So they get they get you equipped with a little bit better gear. There's also got some um, some netting that can you can use for camouflage purposes if you want to use that. So, guys, they guys take their gear. Uh, they move into one of the uh, like a Humvee essentially, and the four of you 
take off down this road. The drive itself is maybe 90 minutes, two hours, and it's off these very small jungle roads. It's an off-road sort of thing. It, eventually, you guys arrive at what looks like buried deep within the Amazon jungle, a clearing. And the, it's, the area was cleared maybe decades ago. It started, it's overgrown now. Uh, the jungle has started to reclaim this area all around the edges. Uh, trees and brush and shrubs and things have moved in. And the area that used to be farmland, perhaps, is because you can see all sorts of new growth. At the very end of this, this area, this clearing, you can see small structures off in the distance. Um, low set structures, single store. Um, housings, or buildings or whatnot. As the group drives closer, eventually they stop the, the Humvee somewhere in a clearing and everyone offloads. We're going to approach on, on foot. What do we know about this? So uh, one guy who's, oddly enough, his name is Black. Hmm. To your white. Uh, so Black comes up to you. He's in his early 30s, crew cut, chiseled features, strong jaw, strong searing eyes. He's basically carrying a, a shotgun. Uh, he's got one of those combat shotguns as opposed to a regular shotgun, uh, the, the auto types. So that's his, uh, his forte. He's looking over there and looks at you and says, we found this old facility while we were scouting. It looks like maybe two decades old. It was blasted to hell, but uh, bosses want us to check it out. La Estancia. That's what the sign says. Uh, I failed high school Spanish. What's that mean? The station, man. Station. It d- doesn't matter. All right. We're going to check it out. I think you'll find it interesting. You want me on Overwatch? Affirmative. Okay. You're on Overwatch. I've got point. This is Frederick's over here. This is Carl. They're on my, they're my right and left. Is there any high ground nearby? Negative, you can get on top of the uh, the Humvee if you want. That's probably your best bet from this position. We can get you one of those trees, but they don't look... It's up to you, Gunny, if you like shooting from up there. If anything's in there, they know we're here already. I'll take the Jeep. Yeah, just hop on the roof there. You can net yourself up. You know what to do. I'll take care of it. All right. So the comms are set up. They, everyone's got the little... um The, micro, the ear microphone, that's the durable microphone that you guys use, mm-hmm. you know. So you, you watch, you set up for your scope, you watch these three approach. And you, they approach and they walk off in the distance. And as you're scanning the perimeter and looking at the buildings, you don't see any people. You don't see any animals. It's daylight. The buildings itself, um, the main buildings you see have been shot to hell. And the interesting detail that you note from your time, of course, in the service, is a lot of the gunfire is coming from above. Okay. As opposed to at range. It reminds you of a couple of the operations that you were in where you yeah, had the Spectre gunship overhead, circling the target and just laying fire down upon it. It looks just like that with the, with the angle of the bullets coming from, from high above and just pummeling these buildings. And you can see that the windows have been destroyed, the structures are smashed. You look at the doorways that are beaten to hell. And you happen to pick a detail up when, the, when you're zooming the scope of one of the, of the doorways. It's faint, it's old, there's, there's like fire stains and whatnot. Uh, you see a swastika painted on one of the doors. Ah, shit. Of course it's fucking Nazis. And you you watch as the three of them fade in the distance as they approach the structure, and that's where we will fade out our Overwatch scene. And we will cut to Agent Rowan. Uh, Agent Rowan, you find yourself in Oakland, California, at the Renee C. Davison Courthouse, down there by the lake. It's an old historic courthouse. You're in a second-floor witness room. Uh, small, poorly decorated, old cheap furniture from like a decade or two ago. 
Uh, you're there with your brother. Your brother is? Uh, my brother's name is Peter. Peter's there. He's wearing his Alameda County Sheriff's uniform. And that's, he's, he's always, <laughs> he's always wearing his, that's what he does. That's, that's Peter. All right. But he's yep. there with you. He's got that stern look on his face. He is your younger, oh, actually, he's older by just what? By what, 11 months? Yeah, so we're actually very close to being Irish twins. He's about nine and a half months older than I am. That's, that is amazingly close. Yeah, but he's <laughs> he's your older brother, uh, and mm-hmm. he is there pretending to be protective, even though you don't need that. But whatever. The two of you are waiting, and at some point along the way, uh, the door opens, and this this very nicely dressed uh, woman, uh, a Miss uh, Hashimoto, uh, comes in. You know, nicely dressed, very polite, professional. Comes in, closes the door. She's got a file folder with her and whatnot. And she smiles at you and says, Miss, Miss Hodgkins, thank you for meeting with us today. We're, the, we're going to uh, go see the judge uh, maybe in 30 minutes or so. We, I just wanted to, we always like to meet before and to make sure you don't have any questions. You understand, of course, today's sentencing? Yes, I do. And of course, I mean, I know my supervisor talked to you already about it. The deal's been in place for quite some time now. And um, she's been very cooperative. Uh, she's helped us uh, with a lot of prosecutions. The deal was, of course, a 10-year max. The judge will decide, and we think he'll give her the max. We're arguing for the max. It's it's not enough. It's a, it is not enough. We all know that. But it was uh, in consideration for her testimony. That's the deal that we, we made. Um, people higher up than me made the deal, you know. But I, I, I don't want – I'm sorry. I'm not trying to apologize for this. But, I mean, today's hearing, of course, everyone, all the victims will have their chance to give a victim impact statement. Have you prepared yours? I have, yes. Okay, so um, we'll just bring you guys in one at a time. And when it's your turn, of course, you just speak to the judge. Uh, he'll, he's very respectful. He'll do the right thing. He's a great judge. And um, and this, we have some closure. You know, when this is all done, we'll all have, have some closure. So um, She'll be there as well? Oh, yeah, of course. Yeah, she, she's required to be there. She has to face these people, the, the people that, that she has harmed. And she has see, it's important that she sees them and hears all of you and understands the harm and the impact and how this has affected your life. Things that will never go away. That, and we know this, this can't change any of that, but it's very important that, that she understand the significance and that your, your statement will communicate that to her and to the court and to, to everybody who's involved. All right. Well, I'm ready whenever they are. Okay. If you would come with me. Certainly. All right. So she, she leads you out of the victim's courting room through their little lobby to the elevators, these you know, ancient elevators in this nicely decorated hall. The high ceilings and whatnot. Ride the elevator up to the seventh floor. Opens up, and there is quite a bit of um, activity outside the elevator banks. There, there's a lot of people in the media. They're actually outside here. They have a couple cameras set up and whatnot. There's a lot of crowds, people milling about. Attorneys, people from the public, reporters, anyone who's interested is out here. Of course, your brother is right there with you, and he he acts like he wants to do some interference. But the reality is, is nobody from the media or the camera crew, no one even seems to notice you or even know who you are. Seeing you doesn't seem to ring any bells. Your name is not in the public, and you, there are no photos of you related to this case. But they are here mostly for the defendant. That's the reason that they have come here, and they're here to hear the story and see the sentencing. So you move past these people who are waiting for their chance to, to do their report uh, through the large double doors of the atrium and the large other double doors that lead to the courtroom. And it's what you would expect. It's a large, the double ceiling of the courtroom, the high ceilings, the huge windows, uh, the very large um, seal of the state of California behind the bench risen in the back where the judge sits. And the activity here, it's uh, things are still going on. People are still milling about. 
attorneys talking to clients, people talking activity. One thing that you notice, of course, is that the Alameda County Sheriff's Department is here in force. Not just the ones that work at the courthouse, and there's always three or four that work around, but in the front row on both sides, you see in uniform, other sheriff's officers there waiting, several are standing in the back. There's some polite nods, kind of acknowledgement. No one talks to you, but they, they notice you and they recognize you. And your brother notices and also responds to them. Uh, at some point that morning, the proceeding starts, and you're not the first to speak. You're not the second to speak or the third to speak. And other people that sh- maybe you know, maybe you remember, maybe you saw briefly, maybe it was after the incident, as of an ambulance, or talking to other officers or whatnot. Other people, men, uh, women, mostly women, give their testimonies, give their statement, give their victim impact statement, until finally, Miss Hashimoto says that they want to now hear from Jane Doe 7, and motions for you to approach. And I'll stand up and pull the, the piece of paper that I have ready out of my pocket, wiping my hands on my pant legs, because I've given testimony in court many, many times as part of my job, but I'm not used to being on this side of the podium. So as you approach, you uh, step up, you cross the bar, which is kind of that little low fence that separates the audience from the rest uh, of the court. There's a podium set up there that's right in front of the two counsel tables. And to your right is the area where the in-custody defendants, they they have a little bar of their own that separates them from the rest of the court. Uh, Standing behind that bar, four different sheriffs flanking her, two on either side. Uh, They're in the full black Alameda County Sheriff's outfits with stern looks on their face as a small woman. Five foot two, rail thin, black hair that sort of dangles in front of one of her eyes, partially obscuring it, gaunt, thin face, pale features, an empty expression on her face, tired expression. She looks like she's in her late 40s, but you know she's not. She knows she's not that old, weathered, worn down, beaten up. This is Coral Lamb. And she's the defendant in this case, uh, the one that gave testimony against all the others and the one who's being sentenced today. She, she looks at you, but doesn't seem to show any sort of recognition or even acknowledgement. Uh, you're the seventh person this morning to give their speech. And maybe at this point, she's just worn down, but she sees you quietly. And she stands there quietly waiting. And I unfold the piece of paper and put it down in front of me, adjust my glasses and take a second to marvel at how small she is. In my memory, she's taller, but memories, memories do that. It's a little uh, tricky that way. But I'll take a second to compose myself, look down at the paper, and then look up at the judge. Your Honor, I am the woman known in the court filings as Jane Doe Seven. Much like those who have spoken before me, I am one of the few prisoners of this cult who survived to bring the cultists to justice. It has been a long road the last few years, waiting for this day to come. A part of me was afraid it never would. Even now, I know there's only so much I can expect from this final sentencing. But I'm here to stand witness in hopes that it will give me some of the closure I seek and to address the defendant. I'll turn my head a little bit and just look at her. She doesn't meet your eyes. She looks down. I didn't expect any different, honestly. Just study her for a moment, glance down at the paper, and then look back up at her. I have this pretty well memorized at this point. I've agonized over every word. You probably don't remember me. Why would you? I was just another prisoner. But I remember you. 
I remember every face I saw in that prison in the dark. You, your friends, your victims. They haunt my nightmares, even years after the events. You have forever changed the way I see the world. My coworkers tease me sometimes, saying that I see the world through rose-colored glasses. Technically, they're right. These rose-tinted glasses are the only way I can see in the light after your group kept me prisoner for endless days in the dark. In reality, however, I see things far more clearly than I ever did before I had the misfortune to encounter you and your fellow cultists. I've never believed the world to be a safe place. I worked very hard as a deputy sheriff to stand between the ordinary people and the darkness. But your actions, and the actions of your fellows, showed me just how deep the darkness goes. And I pause for a second, my hands shaking as I rest them on the podium, forcing myself to calm down. You won't get the justice today that you deserve. Even if you get the maximum time that you bargained for in your deal, 10 years is not nearly enough to pay for the lives you helped end, the anguish you inflicted upon their family and friends, or the fact that you irrevocably changed my life and the lives of the others sitting in this courtroom. There will be a day when you walk under the open sky again, something that cannot be said for those who died because of you. But you have not won. You have changed me, for sure. You've left me with scars, with nightmares, with memories that I will carry to my grave. But you have also left me with a new resolve. There will always be people like you. People who work in secret in the dark to further their malevolent plots. And I will fight them to my dying day, striving always to bring light into the darkness so this doesn't happen to anyone else. Yeah, the courtroom is silent at the end of this. At some point, uh, the judge just nods. It's you. Thank you, Jane Doe 7. And I'll take the paper, fold it back up very carefully in its original lines, slip it back into my pocket, and just stand there for a second looking at the woman. Um, she looks at the floor. Doesn't meet your eyes at all. Uh, you can see looming behind her the other deputy sheriffs, uh, a certain steely hostility to their look. But they, of course, don't do anything. But you, there's a certain palatable intensity in the four of them as they watch. And one of them gives you just a, sh a very short nod. And I'll nod back at them. I mean, these are people that I've known for years. I was one of them. Take a breath, collect myself, and then turn and walk to sit back next to Peter. Peter just gives you a short tap on the shoulder as you get there. and kind of nods at you. Doesn't, doesn't say anything, but the nod communicates everything. Mm -hmm. uh, the judge essentially asks the, the prosecutor if there's anyone else. The prosecutor, of course, is uh, that's all. Uh, the proceedings continue. Um, and at some point, of course, the judge gives his speech where he, he tells Miss Lamb uh, how, how he's disgusted at the facts of this case and the, what her and her friends perpetrated and how there's no way that she could have possibly not known the harm that she was inflicted on a daily basis of so many people and so many souls and rallies and rants a bit before giving her the maximum that he can possibly give her this deal that uh, if not for her cooperation, he would never, ever agree to something like this. And he hopes uh, that, that she finds some way somehow in the future to make amends for the horror that she perpetrated. He knows that these people, these wonderful people that have spoken today have shared their, their trauma. They, they can never be made whole again. So the sentencing procedure continues. They do the formalities. 
It's rather quick. It's a 10-year prison sentence uh, with credits at this point for over three years of custody time that she's already been in, in, in jail. Everything is done. When it's done, she doesn't say anything. She turns. One of the sheriffs gives her some paperwork, takes her thumbprint, and they lead her into this large door that dwarfs over her and take her into the back halls and she vanishes uh, with four sheriff's deputies flanking her and walking her out. And the court continues with other business as you, Peter, and the others quietly exit the courtroom. We'll cut to um, lunch. It's lunch. Where would you want to have lunch with your brother? I think my stomach is still all tied up in knots after all of that. So I would want something pretty simple and just find like a smoothie place or something. Some Or uh, sandwiches. Probably sandwiches, actually. There's a little cafe that does sandwiches and smoothies and whatnot. It's it's a nondescript little place near the courthouse uh, that oftentimes the different law enforcement officers will gather at, you know, between sessions and whatnot. Uh, Peter is there. There's a couple other guys who are on a far-off table that you recognize, but they don't interfere. Peter's got a sandwich that he's not eating and a Coca-Cola. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's just kind of staring at his food a little bit, watching you, and doesn't know what to say. And when we walked out of the courthouse and actually like made our way over here, my hands just started shaking uncontrollably with the huge adrenaline dump because I'd kept it together really well in the courthouse. But now it's just like all of these years that I've been waiting for this and now it's done. And it's just like, sad. my hands are shaking too badly to pick up my smoothie or my sandwich. But I just look at him and go, doesn't feel like it should be over. How you doing, Sammy? It doesn't feel real, you know? Like, I'll wake up and it'll be one more day of having to go in and wait. Wait for what? Wait for this. Wait for this wonderful resolution that we just uh, witnessed in our lovely justice department. Hey, uh, has she got the max, right? That's something. But she'll be out in seven years and you know it. Probably less if she's if she has good behavior. Yeah, 85%. That's, uh, whatever. It's no consolation. At least the DA, uh, what am I kidding? You should have, you should have just done the trial, Sammy. You could have done the trial. I don't know what they're, th- you could have tried this, all these fucking cultists. I wish they had, kind of, but also, I mean, I'm holding it together relatively well, but I can't imagine having to be in there as a witness day in and day out. Just doing the victim statement was enough. I mean, a lot of this stuff happened when you were off at Quantico. Yeah. What what are you what are you doing? You could have stayed here with us. I, I mean I I'm sorry. I know you're you're an FBI agent, right? You're like a <laughs> wow FBI. <laughs> Come on, you know I always wanted to go into the FBI. That was always the goal. We're all we're sheriffs in this family. We're all sheriffs. Just like, just like Daddy raised us, a whole family is sheriffs. What are you what are you doing, Sammy? Being ambitious, like I have been since I was five years old. Okay, you you win. Hey, come back, you could be like my boss or something. I don't care. Oh. Look, I, I tried to be a sheriff again. When I came back from the hospital. When they would let me come back to work. And I was having panic attacks every day. Well, um, how are you going? How are you doing now? Better. The FBI suits me. I'm all over Hell's Half Acre trying to pin down domestic terrorists. It's great. You, you, you pull your gun on anybody? You shoot anybody yet? Eh. Yes, unfortunately. You gotta, you gotta be shitting me. You, you, you shot somebody? Yeah. 
you've been in the FBI how long now? And you're, you're, you're already killing people? Oh, come on. I've been in the FBI for like three years now. It's not that surprising. It's pretty surprising. You're, you're, you FBI agents are all desk jockeys and paper law enforcement. I mean, we're out here on the... Yeah. I'm out in the patrol car every single day. I'm dealing with it, right? What do you, what do you do when you're looking at computer files? But but you're... you're you guess you shot some terrorists or something? What'd you do? Yeah, terrorists. No shit. Yeah, I can't... Come on, Petey. You know I can't talk about a lot of it. You yes. can talk about it. I, you can trust me. I cannot. <laughs> come on, you got to tell me a little bit. job. Oh, oh, come on. Uh, I'll sign some confidential... What are you going to be to sign? I'll sign it. I'll cross my fingers. I'll rest my elbow on the table and hold up my pinky. Pinky swear. I'll pinky swear. Right now. I got you. He, he interlocked his pinky with yours and grins at you. Who, who'd you kill? Uh, so there was a situation in Montana no shit. that involved uh, some outside domestic terrorism things that thought that the backwoods of Montana was a great place to hide. Huh. And I disagreed strenuously with that assessment and uh, turned into a firefight. A bunch of white supremacists or something? Yeah, something like. All right. But, you know, I made it through and we got the job done. Wait a second. You told mom you had appendicitis. You do not tell mom that I got shot. Got oh, I won't it. tell her. I pinky swore, so it's it's good. You got... Is that what happened? Yes. No shit. And I'll, like, glance around to see if anyone's looking and just, like, shift a bit and pull up the side of my shirt so he can, so he can see the scar. Damn. Uh, is that through and through? Yeah. What hits you? Bullet. You were wearing a vest. No vest? I was wearing a vest. It caught me in the wrong spot. Oh. I was moving, and it was shooting through a car door. It was fun. I mean, but you got one of them, right? Got a couple of them. Oh, I'll be damned. Sammy's the action hero. I mean, you know, Steve, Steven, he's never going to shoot anybody. He's on the whole, you know, bureaucrat, fast track. He wants to be dad, right? Yeah, he's, well, he's never... Well, I sure. He's the oldest of us. Of course he's going to go and follow in dad's footsteps. Yeah, I mean, he's he's a, he's a got sergeant, lieutenant, whatever on his on his lapel at some point. He thinks he's the, the shit now. He likes to think he's the shit. We can still drop him in a hole over Christmas. Yeah, he wouldn't know what to do if he saw something like, you know, like we see on a day-to-day basis. Yeah. You doing okay? Better. Thank you. I mean, um, you're coming home for, th- for Thanksgiving, right? Yeah. Yeah, that's the plan. Unless something comes up. And if something comes up, then mom will shoot me and it'll be fun. Mom's not the only one. Mom's the one who's the most outward in her frustration when, I, when I'm not able to make it home for things. I try. I really do. Being out in Sacramento is... <sighs> being out in Sacramento is a bitch for getting family stuff. Cowtown. What are you doing? You should be in the Bay. I mean, San Francisco, that's the better office. I know. But that was where they needed a, a, an agent, and the other option was in fucking Texas, and I wasn't taking that. Yeah, I screw that. Yeah. At least Sacramento, I can drive home on the weekends and see people. All right. He opens up his can of soda now. He feels, at this point, like drinking. Takes a sip. Yeah. And I'll, I'll grab my smoothie and start sipping it. Uh, it's a shame they don't have any other people that they can prosecute and we can see you again. I try to come home as much as I can. I don't know, Sammy. Don't be a stranger, you know? We got bad guys here, too. People you can shoot. Well, how about this? How about you You call in some official FBI thing and specially require a Hodgson? It'll work out that way. Totally. That's totally the way it works, the bureaucracy. I got it. Yeah, I'm going to request you. Yeah, I, I sure. I'll, yeah, I'll, I'll talk I'll talk to Steven about that. Maybe maybe he'll he'll pull some strings. Eat your food. Oh, Eat your God, food. don't put me. 
don't put me under Steven. Don't don't make me go through that. So you guys laugh, you finish your lunch, and we, we fade off this scene here. I'm Tiana Hansen, and I play Rowan. I'm Ben Sislowski, and I play Rooster. I'm Seth Jones, and I play River. I'm Joseph Newman, and I play Rory. I'm Thomas Ogus, the handler. Our story is based upon the role-playing game Delta Green by Arc Dreams Publishing. Delta Green is created by Dennis Detwiller, Adam Scott Glancy, and John Scott Tynes. The Chapter 1 story is based on the scenario Extremophilia, written by Shane Ivey. If you like our story, there's two things you can do to support us. First, check out our Patreon page at patreon.com slash theredactedreports. Patrons of our podcast will receive early access to each new episode of the story, Rowan's written reports for each chapter, as well as access to bonus episodes that explore the background of our characters and the story. And if you can't support us directly, please support us by telling people about us. Uh, Leave a review wherever you get your podcasts. Share us on social media. We're on all the usual social media sites as The Redacted Reports. Thanks for listening.